living room. But this happens in our house at least once a week or so. I'll come into the living room and I've just watched some video of someone going out of their way to be kind or compassionate. And I'll try to explain the video to them. Uh, some people would say, well, why don't you show her the video? I'm like, ah, that's a I'll just explain it to her. And as I'm trying to explain it to her, by the end I'm in tears and I can't finish the explanation. Um, I'm particularly susceptible to videos where someone helps a stray dog or rescues an animal. Those really get me every time. They really get me. Um, I'm not sure why this happens, other than I think that we live in a world that is starving for kindness and compassion and gentleness. And all that constant negativity and all the sin around in the world uh, makes, I don't know, at least me, it makes me sort of overly sensitive to acts of kindness and such. Um, maybe I'm just an odd duck. Maybe I'm just an old bridge. And, you know, it's making my heart grow three sizes. I don't know. <laughs> my guess is it was probably not much different in Paul's day and age. A lot of negativity, a world full of sin. He certainly didn't live in a, a wonderful place. Um, and it's pretty obvious when we read Paul's letters to these early churches that um, they struggled themselves with living out what it means to be like Jesus. Um, I think sometimes in our heads we get the idea that the early church was just like so amazing and perfect. And if that's true, then Paul wouldn't have had to write letters like the middle of Colossians and 1 Corinthians um, and some of the letters where, you know, he's like, what are you guys doing? The whole letter of Galatians. You know, that sort of thing. But the truth is, sin comes easy. Um, and the things that we're going to talk about today, maybe not so much. Now remember, we talked about how to follow Jesus. This chapter, chapter 3 of Colossians, starts out by telling us we need to set our minds on things above. And so we, we started talking about, well, how do we really do that? How do I set my mind on things above? And I pointed out last week, it, it kind of involves a trade-off. And last week we saw the first part of the trade-off. We are put to death all forms of sin that might be hanging around in our lives. We noted that sin is almost always something that damages relationships. All those things he talked about are relationship-damaging things. And they damage either our relationship with God, or our relationships with one another, or both. And we also realize that putting to death sin in our lives is not an easy task. And we saw that we have Jesus' work that frees us from sin. He died on the cross, and those from the dead do break the curse of sin and death. He freed us from sin. We have God's written word to give us guidance on what to do. And we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to provide and empower and advise us in all we need. As Peter says, for life and godliness. And so I pointed out at the end of the last message last week that, that wherever we are, wherever you are, it's never too late to start. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what's going on, it's never too late to start. If you've never committed your life to Jesus, to following him, then you can start now. And if you have sins that you need to put to death, you can ask God for the resolve and the power to put them to death now. You don't have to wait. You can start anywhere. Everybody, wherever they're at, can take the next step they need in order to be more like Jesus and follow him more closely. You can take that next step. Now, interestingly enough, before we get into verses 12 through 
in Colossians 3. I want to point out that this passage is actually the passage of Scripture I have preached on more times than any other passage of Scripture. The reason for that is that Colossians 3, 12 through 15 is my favorite passage to preach at weddings. If I'm doing a wedding and I'm not told, oh, we want you to speak from Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 13 or something, you're getting Colossians 3. That's what you're getting. I've done at least a dozen weddings where I've preached this passage as the sermon for the, for the wedding over the years. So there you go. That's what you're getting. I know you were laughing when I said prepare it. It makes me a little nervous. <laughs> anyway. Amen. Now you've also probably heard the phrase that nature abhors a vacuum. And spiritually I think that's also pretty wise. It's not enough to just put to death sin. We have to replace sin with new behaviors and new ways of thinking, speaking, and living. Otherwise we're just going to go back to the old ways because that's what happens. If we don't replace that sin with something better, eventually we'll just fall back into our old patterns. And that's where Paul is going to go today as we look at the other half of the trade-off. Since we put to death sin, we need to put something else in this place. But before we do that, Paul's going to give us some reasons why we should do this. As we see who we are now in Christ. I'm going to start the first part of verse 12. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now when you're in school, some of you weren't in school that long ago. Some of us were in school a long time ago. For some people, the worst time in school is in gym class when you're choosing teams. Right? Now, I don't know how it is for girls in gym class, but for guys, um, boys really want to win. And maybe girls do too, I don't know, but I, mean, I was in the boys' gym class, not the girls' class. So. And our gym classes were segregated when I was in the girls'. So. Um, so whoever's team captain when you're picking teams is going to pick whoever everybody knows is the best at whatever game you're playing. So we're playing basketball, we're going to pick the best basketball player. That's what it is. So I want to win. Now, when I was younger, I was, I'm much more athletic now than I was then. I mean, at least now I like to go to the gym and do stuff. Back then I wanted to just sit in the corner and read a book. Um, so I wasn't usually, I was pretty far down on picking, let's just say. Unless... One of your really good friends happened to be team captain that day. See, because then you get picked early. Because friendship is even more important than winning. See, that's how God feels about us. No matter who we were or who we are, he wants us on the team. He wants to pick us. He's the friend who will pick us regardless of our ability. He's chosen us, Paul says. And he wants us. Whoever, whomever else doesn't want us, whatever, God wants us. We are wanted people. And he says we're not only wanted, but we're also set apart. That's what holy means here, right? We've been set apart. We're set apart for God himself. In other words, we're special to God. Sort of like fine china. You know, when, when Jen and I got married many, many years ago, just trying hard to forget that day, but... Um, we got fine china as a wedding gift for many people. Right? Do, do people still give china at weddings? See, I don't think it happens anymore. We have a whole china cabinet full of this really beautiful ortaki china, right? And
and see if you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about, and if you're under 40, you're like, what? That's okay. All right? Apparently that's not a thing. But that was a huge thing back in the day. You'd register for multiple sets of fine china. We have, we have really nice china. It's special. It's set apart. We only use it on the most special of occasions. In fact, in 28 years of marriage, there's never been an occasion so special that we actually <laughs> We've never used the china. And as I was writing this sermon, I thought about that. And I'm going to make something this week, and we're going to serve it on the china. Because we've literally never used it. I mean, I could pass it on to my grandkids if I still need to use it. After yesterday, I'm not sure you're ever welcome to use it. You'll put cheese on your pasta. And as a true youper, that is not allowed. Finally, and fortunately for Marissa, we are loved. So we're chosen and we're set apart. But he also says we're beloved. We're loved unconditionally. Even if you put cheese in your pasty, you're still loved. That's the word here. God wants our best because we're the objects of his love just because he loves us. He doesn't love us because of something we do or do not do. He loves us because he chooses to love us. Let that sink in for just a second. God's love for us is not because we're so great or because we do these specific things or, or something like that. It is because he loves us, period. I mean, I, I find that super motivating because I'm much more motivated to want to do what someone might ask of me if I know they truly love me. For me. And God truly loves us for us. So he chose us. He set us apart. We are his beloved. That is who we are right now. That's who you are right now. Even if you're here this morning and you are struggling this morning with some sort of sin or some sort of hurt or, or some sort of pain or you've got some trauma, whatever it might be, okay, God still wants you. He sets you apart for his own glory and purposes, and he loves all of us under him. Incidentally, just to go back a few sermons, I know I'm going to torture your brain, so I'm forcing you to think back like three sermons or something like that. This is another reason why legalism and rules don't work. They create an idea that we somehow can earn favor with God, that somehow I can get more of his love or something if I just live according to this, this rule and that rule. He already loves you. He already favors you. Doing certain things is not going to get us more love because he's already loved you completely and holy. He already sent Jesus to die for you. I'm not sure what more you can ask after that. He's not going to want to choose us more. He's already chosen us. He's already done all that. So since that's who we are, God's chosen ones, holy, beloved. The things that he's about to tell us to put on or to replace the sin in our lives with aren't ways we are earning his love or somehow getting him to want us. He already wants and loves us. And with all our good and with all our bad and all our failures and all our successes and all our nagging sins, 
and your sad thoughts or whatever else it happens to be, your pain, your trauma, I don't know, whatever it is. With all of that, he still loves you. He chooses you and sets you apart. So the virtues we're going to examine here are things that are, are both the outpouring of what he's pouring into our lives, as well as things that God, who loves us perfectly, knows are the best for us. Because of whom we are now, he tells us there's a better way to live and a way that reflects Jesus in everything we do. So he's going to tell us here in verses 12 and 13 how we act accordingly since we are chosen, set apart, and loved. He says in verse 12, back to read this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So putting to death the sins that were listed in verses 5 through 11 that we talked about last week creates a spiritual vacuum. Here Paul tells you what to fill it up with. All of these virtues are ways God is giving us that improve relationships. Bless you. They counter the ways of sin. Just as sin damages relationships, Compassion and kindness and humility and all that, they improve relationships. So a compassionate heart means that we see other people through the lens of the mercy and grace that we've received from God through Jesus. Especially those people that we normally would have a hard time having compassion for. It's hard sometimes. There's just some people, all of us probably have trouble having compassion for. Especially important for people who are suffering, even if their suffering is something that was ultimately their own fault. Right? It's easy to have compassion for somebody who has some unfortunate circumstance. But it's harder to have compassion for somebody that you look at and go, you know, if you wouldn't have done that, this wouldn't have happened. But Jesus puts no qualifiers on his compassion. He just says to have a compassionate heart for everybody. Think about, think about Jonah, right? His entire mission trip to Nineveh was an expression of God's compassion for a whole bunch of people who did not love God and did not love God's people. God had compassion on the Assyrians. Whereas Jonah did not. So first he tries to get out of the mission. And then when he goes, okay, and he preaches about how God's going to judge the Assyrians, what do they do? They go, and they repent. And they're like, maybe if we stop sinning and we ask God, he'll have mercy on us. And God does, and he doesn't destroy them. And then Jonah's really mad. Because Jonah wanted them destroyed. He had no compassion for them. So the fourth chapter, which is actually the, the most important chapter of Jonah, everything in Jonah is leading up to chapter 4, because that's where you really get the lesson. It's God giving Jonah a lesson on compassion, and him explaining how he has compassion on people even, and maybe especially on people who do not deserve it. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about this afternoon, you can go home and you can read 
Jonah. So we got four chapters. Take you 15 to 30 minutes tops to read Jonah. Great story. You'll get the point that I'm talking about. He says kindness. Well, that's just compassion put into action. Right? We feel compassion for other people and we act accordingly. Kindness means that, like God, I do not act towards someone or respond to someone the way they might deserve. But instead, I respond the way I want to be responded to. Or I treat them better than they treated me. Give you a story. Got a phone call yesterday. Out of the blue. Totally random. From someone who really hurt me. Now, I've gotten over the hurt a long time ago. You know, forgave, move on, whatever. But I mean, I had not contacted them or hadn't talked to them. But they called and left me a message, and I called them back, and, and they wanted to wish me a happy birthday, and they were thinking of me. And we had a lovely chat. Now, you know, I could have just ignored the message, right? Didn't have to call them back. I could have just ignored the message. That would have been one option. I could have called him back and said some things. Couldn't I? Could have called him back and said some things. It's pretty good of you to call me a little bit, right? I could have. Don't think, don't think the thought didn't cross my mind. <laughs> I mean, if you think I got Colossians 3 all figured out in my own life, well, <laughs> you should come hang out with me for a week. But I didn't. I called him back. We went with the kindness. I chose kindness. I wish I chose kindness all the time. But I chose kindness. And, and we, had nice, we had a very nice chat. It was very good. Paul says humility, right? That's seeing ourselves rightly before God and others. Now, you need to understand, when Paul talks about humility, it is not worm theology. Okay? I have said many times, in case you haven't heard it, I'll say it again. Jesus did not die for worms. God did not choose, set apart, and love worms. Humility is the idea that I realize I sometimes need compassion and mercy and grace and kindness, and then I see myself in light of that with relationship to other people. It's when we see ourselves rightly as both needy of God as well as chosen and loved. You're both at the same time. And it's a lot easier to put all these virtues into practice when we see ourselves in humility, when we see ourselves rightly. And then Paul has a corollary to that. He uses the word meekness. It's a corollary to humility. The word originally has the idea of strength under control. So meekness is not being a doormat. That's kind of what the word means in English in modern uses. Right? Meekness is sort of like cowering and that sort of thing. That's not what this word means. Here's how I think of meekness. I want you to imagine, I should have put a picture up here. I, didn't. I want you to imagine The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Right? He's a big dude. And I want you to imagine Dwayne Johnson picking up a little newborn kid. Now if Dwayne Johnson wanted, Dwayne Johnson could pick up that little newborn kid and go, no more newborn kittens. Squashed. Right? But he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. It's Dwayne Johnson. The rock doesn't squash things. 
stuff the little kitten and have it in his hands and hold the little kitten softly, right? That's meekness. Meekness is when you can destroy something, but you treat it with kindness and gentleness. I mean, the rocket might be out of the German Shepherd. Or for me, the kitten is more realistic. I might be able to make a kitten. My dog needs me up all the time. That's meekness. Meekness is when we know somebody else's struggles or what pushes their buttons or how to hurt them. But instead, we choose to treat them with gentleness and kindness and compassion, knowing in humility that we also want people to be meek toward us, just as Jesus. And Jesus, does Jesus not know all, all of my sins and yours? He does, right? How does he treat me? Does he treat me with, with like the rock crushing a kitten? He could. He doesn't. He's gentle. And he does things on my behalf so I can move beyond my sin. Then Paul says patience and bearing with one another. You see, you need that because we're not perfect. And other people are not perfect. And because of those two truths, we all need to practice uh, an old word. Some of the old versions translate it this way. Forbearance. I like that word. Forbearance. So we're going to get hurt. We're going to hurt other people. It's going to happen. So Jesus asks us to forbear with or be long-suffering toward other people. To be willing to endure things that they do that could be as simple as something as they annoy us or something as bad as they harm us. But to forgive and to be forbearing and to be patient. So I'll tell you another story. This is a really funny story. I think. I'm driving down Main Street coming this way toward, going toward the coffee shop in the street. And somehow I get behind this much, much older gentleman, a very seasoned citizen, in this little tiny sort of car, like one of those little Chevy Aveos or a Honda Fit or something, really tiny little car, right? And I'm in my truck, and this dude is going, I, I am, I don't even have to put my foot on the gas. Idle is enough to keep me creeping along behind this gentleman. Right? And you, you can imagine, some of you know me well enough to know, my blood pressure is, is going up <laughs> at this point. And I mean, this gentleman was a very seasoned citizen. I, I'm pretty sure late 80s, early 90s. Okay. I mean, he's what I can see him in his mirror, and he was, he was old. And as much as I wanted to rail on my horn and get right up on his bumper and hit my horn and do my, my favorite thing to do when people do like really dumb stuff in front of me, I just, I just look in the mirror and I go, <laughs> like that. Like, what are you doing? Right? But I didn't. And I didn't for several reasons. One is, that just would have not been kind. That would have not been forbearing. Okay? And I've been reading this passage in Colossians, and so I 
Christ's love grows in our hearts, it will combine all these things, like compassion, patience, forgiveness, together into a life that is lived like Jesus. See, when we love like God does, it's a lot easier to be compassionate. Kindness will flow out of our hearts. We'll seek to be meek toward others instead of wanting to crush them. Love, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, right, is patient. Paul says, it endures all things. Love is willing to forgive, especially because Jesus first forgave us. Love is the source of all of those things. And so I kind of think of those things in this passage as like, imagine, I want you to imagine like a spiral, right? And all along the spiral is the being kind and humble and patient and forgiving and meek and all that and all the rest, right? And love is moving along that spiral, increasing those things, and making the spiral go up and be bigger as we go. The more that happens, the more we have God's working in our heart and love, the more capacity we actually have 
and if we're doing those things. And that makes it easier to be compassionate and kind and that sort of thing, which then builds more of our love, and more love means it's easier to be more compassionate and kind and forgiving. On and on it goes. These are all a package deal, really. They're all held together by this growing love for Jesus and for others. Now, Paul also gives us a way here to determine if we're doing these things well. And that is through these final ideas of peace and thankfulness. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Now, when Paul tells us to let the peace of Christ rule here, it's interesting, the word rule is not the word we traditionally think of. In Greek, the word, normal word for rule or to reign is a form of the same word that means king. And that's the normal word. This is a different word. This word is the word that was originally used for the judge or the umpire in the public games. This word is more like the word referee. And it says we're called to peace. I mean, Jesus himself, what does he say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And what he's driving at here is not that if you do all these things, the compassion, humility, and all that, that you're going to have peace. What he means is that peace is meant to be the judge or the referee in our heart. We can see if we are living out all the things of Jesus by whether our hearts are at peace about them or not. If our hearts are not peaceful, maybe the spirit or our own conscience is trying to tell us something. Many years ago, I got into an altercation with someone at a job site I was working on. Now technically, I was in the right. I had permission to do what I was doing, and this person didn't think I did anything that sort of okay. But I handled it very poorly. My heart was not at peace because being right is not the same thing as acting righteously. I may have been right, but I did not act righteously. So I got the guy's phone number, and I called him up and apologized, and he was very gracious about the whole thing. You know, Neither one of us handled it well. But see, I listened to my heart that wasn't at peace. My heart was being the referee. And the referee said, You follow. <laughs> well, experience this at times, right? Our heart is not at peace over something where we were not kind or we weren't compassionate or maybe we just needed to forgive. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's something, even as I say that, that your heart is not at peace at this morning. Learn to listen to that desire for peace in your heart. It very well may be telling you something. Then act accordingly. Because you know what? If you keep shutting it down over time, it'll just stop. It'll be seared. The Bible calls that a seared conscience. Peace is our umpire, is the opposite of the things Paul mentioned earlier. Malice and anger, those are the umpire of our hearts. We're just going to go around destroying relationships with other people. And we've met people like that, right? 
They're so full of bitterness and so full of anger and whatever that they're, they're like a wildfire, setting everyone around them ablaze with their attitude and their actions. Jesus does not want us to be that person for our own good and for other people's good and for his sake. Because you know what? Nothing good ever happens there. Finally, Paul tells us he wants us to be thankful. Now, I also think this is very interesting that he, normally when Paul's talking about thankfulness, he uses the verb form, right? He always says, like, give thanks in all things or something like that. Yeah, we know those verses. But here, the only place in the entire scriptures, he uses the adjective form. It's not something to do. It's a way of being. I like what John MacArthur says in his commentary on Colossians about this. The Colossians were to become thankful persons. The combination of thankfulness and peace is a logical one. Generally, a lack of peace results from self-seeking or dissatisfaction with things as they are. Thankfulness points one to the realization that all things are provided in Christ. There is no room for ill will or bitterness if thankfulness prevails. When we're thankful people, we are much less likely to want the sins previous listed, previously listed, and we'll have a much easier time treating people the way Paul tells us to. And that's the trade-off. And I think it's worth it. Do we want to be people who are, are marked by all those sins that Paul listed? Do we want to be known as angry and malicious and immoral and all these other things that Paul listed? Those things that are going to destroy relationships, things that, as Paul pointed out, are, are why God's wrath is coming on the world? Or do we want to be people who are marked by compassion, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, kindness, those sorts of things. People who are thankful. And maybe all that just feels like a bit much this morning, and that's okay. That's a lot. So start, just like last week, start where you are. Is there someone you need to forgive? Okay, that's a great place to start. Go, you need to forgive that person. Is there someone who needs your compassion? Be compassionate. Be kind. Is there a relationship that you need more humility in? Is there someone you can exercise kindness toward today? It's never too late. And the peace or lack thereof in our hearts can guide us in whatever step God wants us to take on our path to more Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have, through Paul, given us a guide to how we can follow you. Not a guide for how we can earn your love or favor, because you've already chosen us, you've already loved us, you've already set us apart. in that you told us how we can be more like Jesus in this life, how we can have great relationships, how we can set ourselves apart just as we are already set apart in the world around us. So wherever any of us are at this morning, if it's someone we need to forgive or someone we need to be kind to or compassionate toward or someone we need to have more patience with, I pray that you would meet us where we're at we will take that next step to be more like Jesus.